Corner Fringe Ministries presents a 12-part series on the divine nature of God. Please enjoy the study. This is part six of our divine nature of God study. Today, we're going to continue to look at the beautiful relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. And really, the key to all of this, this is very important, the key to understanding exactly how it is that Yeshua could possibly be deity, how it is that he can receive worship, how it is he can receive the same blessing, glory, and honor that is only given to the Father, well, this all begins to take shape. This all begins to make sense as we go further into the Word as we dig further into Scripture. And the further we go, the more time we spend, the more you're going to understand that this mysterious and deeply spiritual relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, it is beautiful. It is absolutely gorgeous. And the simplest way that I can express this, if I may use some imagery here, try to paint you a picture, is a perfect circle relationship. Now what do I mean by a perfect circle relationship? I actually derive this term from, it's a compilation of two different passages found in the Gospel of John. The first is John 6.44 where Yeshua says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Yeshua is very clear here on something. No one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws him. So Yeshua is putting the emphasis on the Father. You can't get to me unless the Father brings you. That's the first passage. Now what's so interesting is that Yeshua makes a similar statement to this, only he does it in the exact opposite order. In John 14, verse 6, Yeshua said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so go back to John chapter 6. He says, Yeshua says, No one comes unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And yet you can't get to the Father except by the Son. This is a perfect circle relationship. You cannot separate the two. You can't have one without the other. That is an impossibility. Yeshua and the Father, they're not independent of each other. They're not separate gods. You can't have the Father without the Son, and you can't even get to the Son except through the Father. They're interwoven into each other. This is the beautiful relationship that we are seeking to unpack as we go further into the Word of God. Nothing happens. I want you to understand. Nothing happens in this a perfect circle relationship or uh, without the father and son being in perfect unison. They always do things in perfect unison. I want you to think about something for a second. The three most defining moments in the history of the world, the most prolific events of all time, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you what I think they are. Number one, creation. I'd say that's a pretty significant event, right? We wouldn't be here. Everything that's here would not exist. This is pretty significant. The second is redemption. Okay, so we had creation, then you have all that stuff in between. You have the fall of man, and they're uh, literally uh, wallowing in death because of sin. God sends his son to what? Redeem the world. Very significant. 
And then we go to the end of the story, which is final judgment. Final judgment. Now, I want you to consider these three, the most defining moments in the history of the world. I want you to consider how do these events come to fruition? I mean, how do they come to pass? How are they accomplished? Well, let's look at creation. Going back to the writer of Hebrews. God, at various times, who at various times and in various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So the Father made all things through his Son. The Father made all things through his Son. We see the Father and the Son in perfect unison. How does God, Elohim, Yahweh, redeem the world? We find redemption comes this way, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So how does Elohim redeem the world? The Father gave his Son. And through his Son, by the will of the Father, we are redeemed to our God. And what about the last one? Final judgment. Something that has yet to take place. How is Elohim, Yahweh, going to judge the earth? John 5.22 For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. I want you to think about that for a second. The Father has done what? He's committed all judgment through His Son. So just as creation, the Father created all things through the Son... He has redeemed the world to himself through his son. He also will commit judgment through his son. He's committed all judgment to Yeshua. This is an inseparable relationship. You can't even begin to describe the Father, his glory, his power, his attributes without first identifying with his son. You won't do it. You can't do it. You cannot understand the Father without the son. Consider Matthew eleven twenty-seven. Yeshua says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In other words, you cannot know the Father without the Son. It's that simple, and it's impossible to know him without his Son. Now, sadly enough, this relationship that we're talking about that exists between the Father and the Son, this is the relationship that is under attack. This is the relationship that is being assaulted by the adversary. The adversary, he's gone out and he is sowing seeds of disruption, seeds of dis uh, confusion, uh, seeds of perversion, if you will, for the sole purpose to take the glory from the one to whom God has ordained to receive it. In other words, Satan's gone out to create a disunity, to break apart this relationship that Yeshua is sharing with us that is so beautiful. Satan's going out to create it, to break apart that beautiful unity. And there are a lot of people buying into this lie. The reality of the Unitarian movement is that it really attempts to bypass the Son altogether to remove the emphasis from him and direct it to the Father alone. Um, this is where you get into dangerous waters. You know, I've had Unitarians actually in the past tell me, in this building, they've come and tell me, well, I don't worship the Son. I only worship the Father. I won't pray to Yeshua. 
I will only pray to the Father. I've had Unitarians come and tell me that I'm doing this congregation a huge disservice because we praise and worship the Son. I've been told I worship the Antichrist because I do this. And to which I respond very simply, if I have the Son, I have the Father. It's that simple. If I have Yeshua, I lack nothing. Listen to the warning given by John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is a liar but he who denies that Yeshua is Hamashiach? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Did you catch that? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. And he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. By default, if I confess, I acknowledge, I believe in the Son of God, I have the Father. That is the testimony. That's the biblical testimony. If we go to John chapter 8. We find the Pharisees, they ask Yeshua a very important question. And they said to him, where is your father? Yeshua answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father. Think about that statement for a second. You do not know my father because you don't know me. The only way I can know the father is if I know Yeshua. That's the only way. Jumping to chapter 15, verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would, not have, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. That's a pretty dramatic statement. If I hate Yeshua by default, I hate the Father. So do you see? Everything that is done to the Son of God, that is done to Yeshua, is done to the Father. If I love the Son, I love the Father. If I hate the Son, well then I hate the Father. If I know the Son, I know the Father. If I've seen the Son, I've seen the Father. You see why Satan would go out to attack this relationship? try to steer you away from making that confession, that very confession that we read about in John chapter 20, Thomas's confession, where he said with his own lips, my Lord and my God. Is it any wonder why Satan would go after this perfect unity between the Father and the Son? Satan has gone out and he is committing character assassination against Yeshua. By taking people away from, taking that worship away from him, taking the praise, the honor, the glory away from him, deceiving the nations. It's character assassination with deadly consequences. He knows that if you don't have the son, then you will not have the father. He's brilliant. He knows what he's doing. I want to take you, take you to um, John chapter 10, because Yeshua is going to explain this perfect unity that exists, this relationship between him and his father, and he's going to do it in very simple terms. We're going to understand this. I'm going to show you some things here, but he does it very controversially. I've got to show you this. It's quite interesting. John chapter 10, verse uh, 23, we'll begin there. Yeshua walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Mashiach, tell us plainly. Yeshua answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Verse 26. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. There are three things that are said here of the utmost importance, and I want to draw your attention to them. Um, verse 27. Look at how he starts out verse 27. He claims to be the shepherd. He states, my sheep. Whose sheep are they? Yeshua says, they are mine. My sheep hear my voice. The second thing he says is found in verse 28. He goes on to say, I give them eternal life. Pretty bold statement. First he has the audacity to state, hey, these sheep, they are mine. And then he goes on to say, I am the one who gives them eternal life. And then he goes on at, at the rest of that verse and says, they shall never perish, neither shall anyone be able to snatch them out of my hand. Think about that statement for a second. He is telling them, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because he's of the highest authority. If nobody can snatch them out of his hands, he's stating no one's greater. I'm at the highest authority. They are my sheep, and I give them eternal life. Now, is Yeshua going off as a rogue deity here and, and taking all the glory? No. He goes on to explain the beautiful relationship that exists between him and his father. Lest they be confused. Look at what he does in 1029. My father, who has given them to me, referring to the sheep, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I think how beautiful this is and how powerful it is. I just learned in verse 28 that no one can snatch them out of Yeshua's hand. And now I just learned in the very next verse, he says, well, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. It sounds like to me we're talking about the same pair of hands. The very same hands that are holding the very same sheep together. Father and the son. There's something else I want to point out in 29 because... This is where the Unitarians get tripped up. This is one of the hardest things they, they, they deal with. They, they can't get their arms wrapped around it. And that is Yeshua's statement where he says, My Father who has given to me is greater than all. In other words, in, in conversations I have personally had, the Unitarians will bring this to my attention. And they'll say, Yeshua had his own self-consciousness that his Father was greater than all. Obviously, he's not God then, nor is he deity, nor is he to receive worship, because he himself has made the confession, his father is greater than all. Or that famous statement in John 14, uh, my father is greater than I. And so with this, you know, they are really challenged. Let me first state that this statement that Yeshua makes here, my father is greater than all, it doesn't preclude Yeshua's deity. It doesn't preclude that testimony that Thomas gave, my Lord and my God. Why do I say that? <laughs> Wait till you see what Yeshua says next. He just said, my Father is greater than all. In verse 30, I and my Father are one. Think about that for a second. He makes the statement. He says, you can't take them out of my hand. You can't take them out of the Father's hand. My Father is greater than all. Then he has the audacity to say, I and my Father are one. We're a chad. 
you need to understand the gravity of what Yeshua just said. There's more to it. Because you need to understand that this is a play on words. What Yeshua has just done is a play on words. It's a play off the most esteemed Jewish prayer of all time. The Shema. A very prayer that little Jewish children would have memorized by the time they're three or four years old. Because they would have heard their fathers, their Abbas, had repeat this and taught this over and over. This is the fundamental principle in the Jewish faith. The Shema. Which states, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What did Yeshua just do? He stepped out, he says, my father's great and all. Then he came out and said, I and my father are one. The very thing the Shema states. But how does the Shema start? Shema. Shema means here in Hebrew. Shema Israel. It is a trumpet call. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. What did Yeshua say in verse 27? If we go back a little bit. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. He just got done. He's yelling. Israel, my sheep hear my voice. This is exactly what the Shema is. Hear, O Israel, hear what? The voice of God. It's an amazing passage. Yeshua is making a play on words here. And how did the Jews who opposed him, how did they deal with this? Well, let's look at this. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Yeshua answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. The Jews understood exactly what Yeshua had done, making that play on words, that play off of the Shema. He had just made himself God. Now, was Yeshua making himself God on an independent level? No! That's why he goes on to explain this relationship. It's just the opposite. Yeshua is simply trying to explain to them that beautiful relationship, that perfect circle relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, I want to build upon this concept even further. I want to take you to the Tanakh, the Old Testament. I want to show you a picture that foreshadows this very relationship that we're talking about between the Father and the Son. Um, and one thing we need to realize as believers in Yeshua, the Old Testament is all about who? Yeshua, right? In John chapter 5, Yeshua makes that beautiful statement. You search the scriptures... For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Drop down a few more verses. What does he say? If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Referring to Torah. In other words, the entire Hebrew Bible is about one person, Yeshua. All right? Well, with that said, I want to take you back to the Tanakh, to the Old Testament, since it is all about our Jewish Messiah, because there's a relationship there. There's a relationship that, re that was recorded that parallels the very relationship that we're reading about in the New Testament between Yeshua and the Father. And we're going to see that if, if when we go back to this, if we can get any sort of confirmation, if there's any way we can get any sort of confirmation regarding the amazing relationship between the Father and Son that is being presented to us 
in the New Testament. It was anything foreshadowing this crazy relationship that Yeshua came and laid upon the world. There is. And it's a story about two men. Names are Avraham and Yitzhak, or Abraham and Isaac. And I want to first address Abraham. One thing to note about him throughout the Word of God, Abraham is identified as Father Abraham. We know that special covenant that was given to him, that he was changed his name from Avram to Avraham because he would be a father of many nations. So I'll just give you a couple examples. We find Paul in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. He says, It is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all to see, not only to those who are of the law, but also of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. So the Apostle Paul even identifies Abraham as father. Again, Galatians 3.17, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Again, Paul identifying Abraham as the father. James refers to him as father Abraham. Yeshua himself refers to Abraham as father Abraham. All this to say, I'm just making the simple point that uh, Abraham, or Father Abraham, is a typology of our Father in Heaven. Okay? He's a typology of our Father in Heaven. Now this Father Abraham had a son. A very special son who was quite unique. And I say this because his son's conception was miraculous. Now lest there be any confusion, I am not talking about Ishmael. The son that was born to Abraham through a maidservant, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. I'm referring to Isaac. See, Isaac's birth was something quite extraordinary in that Sarah could not have children. I want to show you this. Genesis 18, verse 10. And this is Yahweh. He had come to spoke. Remember those three men? Yahweh was speaking with Abraham. Well, here we said, And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. She was 90. She was getting up there in age. But the text says she had passed the age of childbearing. Sarah couldn't have children. Physical impossibility. Could not have children. We continue in verse 12. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah laughed she, because she was looking in the physical realm. It's impossible. For me to have children. Isaac's conception was a miracle. God does what God does best. He takes the impossible and he makes it very possible. Amen? His birth was supernatural. We ever heard any story like this before? Luke 1.31 The angel comes to Miriam and behold you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and she'll call his name Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Then Miriam said to the angel, How can this be since I don't know a man? So fascinating. Do you see the symmetry, the parallels between the response of Sarah and the response of Miriam? They both are looking at their situations as impossible. Impossible. I haven't even known a man, Miriam says. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, The Ruach HaKodesh will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Think about this for a second. The conception of Yeshua completely supernatural, even more so than that of Isaac. And think about how wondrous of a thing this was. You literally have the seed of God coming down through the Holy Spirit and impregnating Mary. She, she didn't conceive of man. She was conceived by the Spirit of God. So thus, quite literally, makes Yeshua not normal, okay, to, for starters. It quite literally makes him the Son of God. He's literally of the seed of his father. Check your history books. You won't find anything like this ever recorded. It's never happened. It's never happened in the Bible. Yeshua is literally the Son of God. Do a DNA test. Yeshua is the Son of God. It's his Abba. Literally his Abba. I, I'm so fascinated by just that. If you just look at the Immaculate Conception, she didn't conceive of man. It was God who came down. With that said, I, I want to continue to draw some parallels between this Abraham and Isaac and, and the father and Yeshua. From the very beginning, we saw Isaac was special, being born to a woman that couldn't bear children. But there's something else about Isaac I want to mention here. And it's found in Genesis 22. And it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. I shall tell you. Now, there's something said in this passage that's quite important, and I want you to pick up on it. It's the fact that Abraham is about to set on a journey to the land of Moriah to sacrifice his son. You know what the land of Moriah is? It's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. He had set out on a journey to go sacrifice his son, Yitzhak. And the text doesn't stop there. It says something else. Did you catch it? Right at verse 2, it says, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. This statement is a little peculiar considering Abraham had another son who was older than Isaac, right? Ishmael. He was 14 years old when Isaac was born. And yet Isaac in the passage, and he wasn't dead. Ishmael didn't die. Not at this point anyways. And yet the passage explicitly calls Isaac his only son. When you consider John 3.16 again, for God so loved the world that he gave... Where? In Yerushalayim, his what? His only begotten son. As a what? Sacrifice. We see this relationship unfolding. We were given a foreshadow in Abraham and Isaac. And we find Isaac is what? He is a typology 
of Yeshua. Literally a typology of Yeshua. And if you question this, the New Testament writers pick up on this. They saw the relationship of Avraham and Yitzhak as being that relationship between the Father and the Son. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Mashiach, Christ. What's fascinating, literally the scripture Paul is quoting, if you go to Genesis 21.12, you'll read that in Isaac your seed shall be called. And yet Paul, what's he do? He identifies the deeper meaning of the passage and he literally calls him out by Yeshua. Let's take this even further. If we go back to Genesis 25, we're going to discover something else. Abraham does something for Isaac and only Isaac. Look at what he does. Uh, Genesis 25 verse 1. Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begot Shabbat and Dadan. And the sons of Dadan were Asherim, uh, Ledushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanoch, Abidah, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Now, something you need to know here. You have still. You have Isaac still alive. Now all of a sudden, we find a couple chapters earlier, Abraham's wife had died. Sarah had died. Abraham takes a new wife named Keturah, and she bears six sons who have sons. So this guy, Abraham, he's got a lot of children right now. And yet the very next verse says this, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Sound familiar? John 3.35 The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 16.15 Again, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I will uh, said I, He will take of mine and declare it to you. They're mine because the Father has given Him all things. So we see there was a very unique relationship foretold in Abraham and Isaac, it foreshadowed the relationship of the father and son. A relationship that is recorded to point towards, to confirm the greater revelation, the perfect circle relationship, where we find the father and the son are truly achad. They are literally one with one another. I want to take you to John chapter 5, because John chapter 5 is perhaps, the, it carries the most potent or compelling uh, evidence in, in, in such a short time, in, in a condensed version, if you will, um, to show Yeshua's deity. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, we find uh, a fascinating story. There's a man who had suffered from an infirmity for 38 years. He's completely immobile. And this man had the luxury of Yeshua actually walking up to him and saying, you know, um, asked him, would you like to be made well? And the man responds to him, well, I have no one to throw me into the pool or you know, bring me into the pool when it is stirred. Yeshua responds to him, take up your bed and walk. Now when Yeshua did this, it was the Sabbath. He healed the man on the Sabbath, and unfortunately, the unbelieving Jews didn't take so kindly to this man walking around on the Sabbath carrying his bed. So they begin to rebuke him, saying, listen, you're not supposed to be carrying your mat on this day. It's the Sabbath. The man responds, the man who healed me told me to pick up my bed and walk. At which point, 
they go out and they start persecuting Yeshua because of this. And we read the following, verse 17. Yeshua answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. There's that unison. All, everything Yeshua does, all these things he's painting, is the picture of him and his father being Achad. Completely. Verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Again, the Jews understanding exactly what he was stating. And again, how does Yeshua respond? The response is so important that we follow up on what happened in the story. And the response is Yeshua stepped back and said, no, no, I'm sorry. You totally misunderstood what I just said. You took it the wrong way. I'm sorry, that's not what I was, my intention. Is that what he does? No, actually we're going to see that Yeshua goes on to further explain the relationship that exists between him and his father. In verse 19, Then Yeshua answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees his father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Yeshua is not a rogue God. He's not on his own, independent from the father, doing his own thing, receiving glory, honor, and power separate from his Father. It's received in perfect unification. They are one with one another. Now look at what happens in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. This is a powerful statement. Yeshua just said, exactly how the Father raises the dead? Yeah, that's how I operate. That's how I roll. I give life. When it comes to being God, one thing is very clear to me. It is God and God alone who gives life. And for Yeshua to come out and make this statement that I give life, just as he said, I give my sheep eternal life. When he makes those statements, it is a deistic statement. God is the one who gives life to all things. Without God, there is no life. It's that simple. Verse 22, Yeshua goes on to say, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Again, going back to a deistic statement. Judgment is done by Yahweh. You understand? Judgment is done by Yahweh. If we go to Psalms, over and over and over, I'm just going to give you a couple examples. We could find Yahweh is judge. But here in Psalm 7-8, Yahweh shall judge the peoples. Okay, Psalm 9-7. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. This is a psalm, this is a prophetic psalm talking about final judgment. He has prepared his throne, which we read last week. Where is Yeshua? He's at the throne of the living God. He's in the midst. Mesos was the Greek. Verse 8. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. We're going to end here for today point I want to make here is go to the Tanakh, go to the Old Testament, who does judgment? Yahweh. Go to the New Testament, who's doing judgment? Yeshua. Was there a change? No, there was no change. There was a revelation of who Yeshua 
is, of who Yahweh is. It's in this relationship. It's all hidden within this relationship of the Father and the Son. Now, next week we're going to continue to talk about this title that Yeshua carries that is it's so powerful, but it's his title, Son of God. And we're going to find through that title, without a doubt, you won't even be able to, you, you will not be able to even argue it, that Yeshua is in fact deity. So with that, Shabbat Shalom.